This show is sponsored by Set for Life Insurance, the ultimate client experience in the insurance industry. Are you looking for the perfect insurance coverage that suits your needs? Founded in 1993 by President Jamie K. Fleischner, Set for Life Insurance specializes in individual life, disability, and long-term care insurance. As brokers, they represent numerous companies in the industry, ensuring that their clients get the best products at the most cost-effective rate. What sets Set for Life Insurance apart? You'll enjoy special discounts, priority underwriting handling, and even exceptions in the underwriting process. So why wait? Contact Set for Life Insurance today and let them be your insurance partner for life. Visit their website at setforlifeinsurance.com or call them at 1-888-553-3559. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Lee McIntyre, author of How to Talk to a Science Denier. If you like what you hear, you can find his literature at leemcintyrebooks.com. And now for part two of two. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Is there some common thread where some of these people that have gone over the deep end and they're like either complete anti-vaxxers or climate denial or flat earthers and they've changed their mind and they've somehow come out of it. Is there any like common pathway for that? Yeah. The interesting thing here is that this has not been well studied in the scientific literature. So I wish as a philosopher of science that I could lay out for you all the different studies that have been done on this. There's one study that was in Nature in 2019 by Cornelia Bache and Philip Schmid talking about how to talk to science deniers and get them talked out of their beliefs. And their one way was with the five trope strategy that's called technique rebuttal. And the other was something called content rebuttal, which is if you're an expert, do that. But that was for people who had just heard scientific misinformation and were not really committed to it. And so that's what, so what hasn't been studied is the deep, deep, deep personal identification as a science denier. You know, I watch this channel every day and they always lie to me, but I never know they're lying to me. You know, I'm just marinating in the disinformation for 10 years. How do you convince that person? It can be done. I'm going to talk about the anecdotal literature here, realizing that anecdotal literature is anecdotal. And yet, when I started to read around this question that you just asked, they, it all followed the same pattern. There were absolute hardcore deniers about vaccines, about climate, about most anything. And when they came out of it, it was because somebody that they trusted and loved took the time to be patient with them, not yell at them, not be angry at them, and just be open to conversations whenever they wanted to have them, and then they would come out of it. And there's some famous cases that I talk about in my book, and I love these cases, of course. My favorite one is the Jim Bridenstine, who was a kind of rock rib conservative member of Congress, who gave a speech in the U.S. House in which he said all the things that climate deniers say. And of course, Donald Trump appointed him to be head of NASA, because what else are you going to do with a guy like that but make him head of the world's leading scientific organization that studies climate change? Within a month, Jim Bridenstine changed his mind. 
he and came out publicly and said, I was wrong. Climate change is real and we're the cause of it. Now, his whole political identity was wrapped up with being a climate denier. And within a few, you know, within a month, he gave it up. Why? I think it's because as head of mass, he met scientists. He talked to them. He was their boss. He learned, he had, he learned to trust them. That's what works. It doesn't always work, but if anything is going to work, that's what works. It's what philosophers call it, you know, that it's a necessary, but not sufficient condition, right? You've got to have that calm, respectful, patient conversation, which usually doesn't work. But if you don't do that, you're not going to get them at all. And sometimes that calm, respectful conversation will work. Another way of putting it is if anything's going to work, that will. It could also be that it works a hundred percent of the time if given enough time, but no. you know, not everybody is being put into, <laughs> no, not, no, no. Okay. There are some people that it just will not, and you have to save your own sanity and realize who those people are yeah. and move on to the ones that you can get. What about when you're communicating with people online? Because I always think of it like if you are, let's say it is a troll, you're not doing it to convince them. You're not communicating to convince them. You're communicating for the readers, for the, yeah. the onlookers, for the, the bigger audience. So is there any difference in how you communicate in that situation? It, 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 yes. Uh, it is much harder online because if you think about trust, trust is best built face-to-face. So especially if it's, you know, the comment section of an article, one of these politically polarizing articles in the Washington Post, and you get to the comment section, it's just a sewer because people are just, they know which team they're on and they're just spewing hatred at one another. What I try to do is to uh, reach out a hand of reasonableness and see if they reach back. And if they do, then, you know, even though other people are watching, then I try to be scrupulously honest and, you know, as calm as you can be online, recognizing that it's all always amplified when you're online and just, you know, see what I can do. If it's a hardcore troll and their whole point is just to try to humiliate you, you know, you can pretty quickly move on. But I've actually had some good interactions. I had one, so it was online in the sense of what we're doing now, but it was a big Zoom meeting that, you know, was open. And then this troll came in and kind of filibustered the meeting, disrespecting me, calling me names, et cetera, et cetera. The host was just about to nuke him out of there. And I said, hang on a minute, hang on. And I talked to the guy for a minute, asked him what his concern was, and it was about vaccination. And I finally said, you know, look, nobody's going to force you to take the vaccine. We can't vaccinate you at gunpoint. This is not going to happen. So it is completely up to you. Do you have any relatives? And he, you know, talked about his niece. And I said, well, you got to understand that you're not only risking your own life, you're risking her life too. And doesn't she deserve a choice? And, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you to take the vaccine. I'm asking you to reflect on that and what she would want you to do. And by the end of it, we actually had a pretty good exchange. He uh, measured by the fact that when he started out, he was calling me boy. And when he ended, he was calling me sir. Which is not, doesn't mean that I have this, you know, this great, these are not the droids you're looking for kind of power. It just means that I showed, he called me boy and I showed him respect and then it made him uncomfortable to continue to disrespect me when I wasn't disrespecting him. And so he knocked that off. 
And once he knocked that off, then we could have pre pretty reasonable conversation in front of a whole bunch of other people. We're going to, there, there are a couple more things that I want to get to. I, is it okay? Absolutely. I want to be respectful of no your problem. time because we're, there, there's something that you refer to called the double standard of reasoning that's often used by science deniers. What is that? One thing that you notice with science deniers is they don't identify as deniers. They'll say, I'm more scientific than the scientists, or I'm the skeptic. Skepticism is a good thing. You, you guys are not being skeptical enough. You're just buying the scientific consensus. Sheeple, right? What I think happens is that deniers are what I call cafeteria skeptics. They will go through the line and be skeptical of a couple of things, and then they're not skeptical about other things, which, and usually what it means is that they're skeptical of the things that they don't want to believe, and they're completely gullible of things that they do want to believe, and that's the double standard, because they want you to prove something, which in empirical reasoning, you can't do. They want you to prove something that they don't want to believe. But then when you ask them why they believe something and you ask for proof, they say, oh, well, well I, I don't need to offer you proof. I, I just know that it's the case. That, that's a double standard. Pointing out that that's a double standard I've found to be kind of effective. They're usually not prepared for that. They're prepared for, you know, some theory about the CDC or Fauci. They're not prepared for you to say, well, you just violated a norm of reasoning there. And I mean, if you say it in a calm way, they, they'll be kind of curious, what, what are you talking about? Well, you know, what, and I used this on a flat earther one time. He had just gotten done with a whole um, seminar, because they have seminars, in which he was saying that every picture from NASA was faked. And, but then one of his arguments for flat earth was a picture that he had allegedly taken from 60 miles out in Lake Michigan, where the skyline of Chicago was still there. And that shouldn't be, given the curvature of the earth. And I said, you got to be kidding me. You're showing me this picture. You just dismissed the entire photographic catalog from NASA, but you're showing me that picture as proof. And he says, well, I know the guy who took it. Come on. How is that supposed to compel me? And he said, well, I went out there and saw it myself. And, and I said, uh, well, did you, do you always see it? Well, no, some days you don't see it. Aha. Uh -huh. Can you explain the days that you don't see it? You don't take a picture of those, do you? There, you know, it starts to make them a little uncomfortable. How can you undermine pictures as proof and then use pictures as they, proof both at the same the time. time? Yeah. It's, it's inconsistent. Yeah. Or rely yeah. on their expert, That's but not your expert. Yeah. So speaking of experts, your wife is an expert and an anesthesiologist. So I would imagine with the work that you do, um, there must be some pretty interesting <laughs> dinnertime conversations that happen. And, and this is what I love about being a podcaster and listening to podcasts is you, you basically get to be the fly on a wall for an interesting conversation. So if we were a fly on the wall for one of these conversations where we're talking about your work, mm -hmm. what, what is the exchange like? Well, she's, my wife's name is Josephine and she's very interested in what I'm writing. She wants to hear about it. I don't really give advice for how she could, you know, use anything that I'm saying with her patients. So she'll sometimes send me articles or, you know, something that she knows is related. I wish I had a good anecdote or story to, to share with you. 
she told me, she knew I was going to be interviewed by you. The one thing she says, you know, I don't violate HIPAA rules. So, you know, there's not going to be very good stories here. But, you know, the fly on the wall for our conversations about my work, she sometimes will kind of validate the idea that people will not listen if you're pushy. You know, but as an anesthesiologist, she has to explain all of the risks you know, she has to consent them before they get anesthesia, which means she has to go over all the risks and then at the end say, you know, do you understand? And sometimes they don't understand. They want to know, well, what's the chance of this? Or what's the chance of that? And sometimes if it's an obstetric case, I mean, they don't have a lot of time to consent them. They've just, you know, got to go. And so it's a little bit of a high wire act. And I've, I've never been there to see her do it. But one of the reasons that I was interested in going out to talk with science deniers is because I've just, in hearing her talk about how, what her approach is, she's got a very humanistic approach. You know, she'll say to the patient, I am going to take such good care of you, which doesn't say, trust me because they're, oh, why should I trust you? She'll say, you know, I, I know, I know you're nervous. You know, this is your first child. I'm going to take such good care of you. And somehow, and they want to hear that. And that, you know, puts them in the mood to, to trust. And so, you know, our, yeah, you're not guaranteeing an outcome, th that's you're not right. guaranteeing an outcome. You're just letting them know that you're yeah. going to be very careful and very thoughtful and really yeah. care about what happens. Th that you put your finger in it right there with the word care. My wife helped me to realize that sometimes it's not about belief. It's about caring. Look at the people who, uh, who, uh, are climate deniers. Sometimes I think it's not that they don't believe in climate change. I think it's that they don't care. And it's more socially acceptable to say, oh, science hasn't proven it yet, than to say, I don't care what happens in 30 years, I'll be dead. Or, you know, who cares? I don't live in that part of the world. I don't care if it's 120 degrees. You know, that's socially unacceptable. It's the caring piece that ends up I found, I mean, this was kind of a key moment in, in my book. This was a discovery for me. You have to not only worry about what the person believes, you have to think about what do they care about? Say you've got somebody who has grandchildren. Maybe then all of a sudden they do care about what kind of world they're leaving to somebody. So that's the thing that I've really learned from Josephine is that she's so empathetic, you know, under, but understanding, you know, she's got to be efficient and do what she needs to do. But I mean, she always starts out, no matter how dire the case, with building the trust with the patient, you know, in that moment when they just met her, they're going to be asleep in, you know, 10 minutes, you know, she has to, you know, to get them to trust. It's really kind of amazing. I haven't revealed a lot of secrets there. We've been married 37 years. No, <laughs> I know better than to reveal any secrets. To wrap things up, this could be really daunting to study, right? Because misinformation we learned from covid it's just so easy to spread it because it's so tempting to believe it it's so tempting to believe that you don't need to wear a mask because they were uncomfortable it's tempting to believe that it's not going to harm you because it gives you this that covid is not going to harm you it's going to give you this feeling of safety it's tempting to believe that climate change isn't real because the reality is terrifying so it's so easy for this misinformation to spread, it could be our undoing. Yes. So in the face of all of that, what gives you hope? You, you, I don't know whether you did it intentionally or not, but you set me up perfectly to, to answer that in the sense that I have a brand new book. 
<laughs> and you use the word Basically. misinformation. Nine times out of 10, it's not misinformation, it's disinformation, which means that it's not a mistake, it's a lie. And for it to be a lie, there has to be a liar. And so ask yourself, who would want you to believe that there were microchips in the COVID vaccines? Who would want you to believe, you know, pick whatever thing it is? The thing that gives me hope is that once you admit that it's disinformation, you can fight it. Then the pro and the reason I wrote, you know, this book is because, which I mean, you can read in an hour and a half, it's a tiny little manifesto. What gives me hope is that once you admit that we're in an information war, there are things that you can do to fight back. But if you don't admit we're in an information war, then it can just all seem so confusing as to seem like, oh, I don't even know what's true. So I'm just going to rely on what I think is true or just listen to the people that, you know, around me. And you've got to, it's like walking into a used car dealership, right? They, you don't walk in there without understanding that they've got some tricks up their sleeve and they're going to pull it on you. So why, when you're reading the newspaper or watching the news, do you not feel like, you know, you just have that trust? I mean, it depends on what channel you're watching. And I want to, I want to end with a story. Microchips in the vaccines. You've heard that a million times from your patients. And you probably say, you know, they've studied this. Why would they have it? It's not, technology is not even possible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know where that came from? I do because I've heard you, I've heard you yeah. talk about it. So it was Russian it, bots. Yeah. So yeah. Th this was a Russian. This was it, well. I don't know if it was invented, but it was certainly amplified through a Russian troll farm. That it was published in April 2020 in the Oriental Review, which is an English language propaganda arm of what used to be the KGB, and it said any future Western vaccines will have microchips in them courtesy of Bill Gates, who holds patent 666 on that technology, share this story on Facebook and Twitter. A month later, 28% of the American population believed it. Now, that is a wildly successful disinformation campaign. But if we think of that as misinformation, we miss the point. It's disinformation. Somebody wanted us to believe that. Why did they want us to believe it? Well, Putin wanted us to believe that for two reasons. They had the Sputnik vaccine. I mean, you can't make this up. They had a vaccine called the Sputnik that, you know, in April 2020, it was a horse race. Who was going to get to market first? And the Asian and African markets were very lucrative. The worldwide market was lucrative. And they wanted people to use the Sputnik vaccine. And the other thing was pride. And they called it the Sputnik, for goodness sakes. But it was also that Putin has been undermining American science for the last, you know, 20 years, ever since he's been in office. This is part of his information warfare campaign against the West is to undermine our trusted institutions. And one of those is science. So did he care that untold thousands of Americans might have died from believing that? No, he didn't care. Now, exposing that story, telling that story. I think is a way to fight back. So what gives me hope? That if we do enough investigative journalism and really understand, this is disinformation, not misinformation. So 
who came up with the story and why do they want us to believe it and what money's behind it. Kind of sounds like a conspiracy, except it has a benefit of being true. You know, you, once you find the receipts, I think that we, then we can learn how to fight back because there is a way to fight back against disinformation. We shouldn't just give up. And to be able to tell people you're being lied to, you know, especially imagine telling that to a conspiracy theorist. If you've got a patient. Well, that's what they're being yeah. told, right? They're being told that Fauci well, is lying to lying. you. Now you're what, able to come back with something them, even more. Do, do you know yeah. that Andrew Wakefield yeah. had a financial interest in a competing vaccine? Maybe they didn't yeah. know that. Now you're speaking their language. Yeah. One conspiracy for another. One is realistic. The other one's not. I'm not proud, right? Will that appeal to them? That seems like a great way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can see, do your own research, you know, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> a great way to end. So Dr. Lee McIntyre, How to Talk to a Science Denier, and now on disinformation, check the books out. Thank you so much for your time and, and all the great work that well, you're doing. Thank you for being the tip of the spear. You and all of your audience out there, I have great respect for uh, physicians and, and all of the work that you do. And thanks for having me on. No matter what your insurance needs are, Set for Life Insurance has you covered. They're a nationally recognized leader in disability, life, and long-term care insurance, serving clients across all 50 states. Their dedicated team specializes in assisting medical residents, physicians, dentists, business owners, and other high-income professionals. Setforlifeinsurance.com or call them at 1-888-553-3559. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.